take your Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. Last week, I was supposed to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, but uh, we never got there. But if you go online, it's still labeled 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, so this will be, I don't know, actual 2. You'll see it. All right, let's go ahead and uh, read through the chapter, and then we'll go and pray. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen or ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit." For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself ju is judged by no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you just um, for this message and what it's, mean, or what it's really meant to me, Lord. Just uh, to see how big you are, Lord, just to get a glimpse of your glory. And God, I pray that uh, we'd be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'd be with me, that you'd give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. God, I pray that you would hide me, Lord, and that people would, uh, God, sense your presence, Lord, God, and that they would magnify you by the time this is done. You know, I pray. Amen. All right. So, to kind of recap with uh, where we were at last week, uh, the Apostle Paul was discussing how there was divisions in the church that someone had brought to his attention. And this had been brought in by worldly or human wisdom because at the time there was philosophers, orators, people who were great speakers, and they would get up and they would, they would present their positions and people would go and they would gather around and eventually people would kind of pick their heroes. Like, I like this philosopher, or, you know, I like this debater. And they started to take this mentality, this worldly wisdom, and they brought it into the church. And so some people say, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos. These are the speakers that I like. And so then Paul tells them and gives them a very solid example of how foolish worldly wisdom is by telling them that this is not the wisdom by which you learned the gospel. And he tells them that this very wisdom that you're trying to embrace is actually the wisdom that deems what you believe to be foolish. I mean, the world thinks you're stupid, and yet you're embracing their wisdom and bringing it into the church. And then he talks about how the things that God uses, it's not many mighty, not many, you know, powerful. It's not many necessarily the wise, but God chooses the weak things, right, to confound the powerful. So and he does this all so that he gets the glory, and then it becomes very heavy, like, 
like Christ-centered. The, like the very last verse talks about how Jesus is he's our sanctification. He's our, he's, our, he's our wisdom. He's our redemption. And so then we get into chapter number two. Now there's going to be still a very heavy Christ focus on the first portion of this chapter, but then it's going to take a very sharp turn and talk about the Holy Spirit. It says you guys shouldn't be fighting over worldly wisdom, a wisdom by which you did not come to know the gospel. But also, the wisdom that you have, the difference between those who are being saved and those who are perishing, isn't even something that you came up within yourself. It was a gift. It was the grace of God opening your eyes. So there's been nothing that you should possibly be bragging about. So, very first verse says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ, and him crucified. It continues on, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he says that, based on everything that I've said to you already, that you didn't come to know Christ by the wisdom of men, he's like, I'm only preaching unto you Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it makes a lot of sense, too. What he's saying is, I don't need to fish from the, the world's pool to get worldly wisdom, to get philosophy when I present the gospel. You know, I, one of the things I know that both, you know, me, Pastor Joel, Pastor Caleb, we all like to follow sometimes some apologists, you know, reasons for why we believe what we believe. But then sometimes there's a danger in some of the people that you can follow. Because there are some people who, in their defense of God, will then borrow heavily from the world's philosophy to defend God, sometimes even to the point where they will actually contradict some things that are found in Scripture, which is not what we want to do. We want to defend the God of the Bible, the one, the God who truly is, the one who, he is who he is. We don't need to add anything to him. We can defend him from Scripture, but yet there are people who, because they need, feel they need to pull from world philosophy, will try to defend God and in the process of doing so, actually creating their own God. This is not what we want to do. We want to make sure that we're preaching Christ and him crucified. But then he starts to talk about his weakness in God's power. And he, he says that when he was with them, he was with them in weakness and in fear and trembling. Now, some people think that that fear and trembling meant that he was just very zealous, and that he probably didn't actually have fear. Um, I, I think he probably did. He had been stoned enough to know that, um, and beaten and persecuted, that sometimes there's consequences for preaching the gospel. And so, and it also plays off of chapter one as well, too. And that I do think some of it be, is being a little bit sarcastic as far as weakness, because we know weakness is what God uses. That is the power of God. So he says, I came to you not displaying what the world would be considered to be great strength and great power and great wisdom. I came in display of the power of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in the mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. God uses us as his means to give out the gospel. But he says he uses us. I says earthen vessels are essentially jars of clay. Why? Well, as we saw at the end of chapter number one, 
It's for his glory. He wants to make sure there's no doubt and no mistake who's doing this and who's accomplishing it. So he chooses to use dirt for his purposes. He says that we are this dirt, but it's also something we need to keep in mind when we're giving out the gospel, that it is, a, it is a work of the Spirit. So giving out the gospel can't be salesmanship. I know so many times people, I've heard people trying to convince people and to urge people to trust the gospel, or trust Jesus Christ you know, through the gospel. And I get that. There should be some urgency there because there's a lot at stake. But we also have to be mindful that we are not the ones that change people's mind. We think that if we argue well enough, if I bring enough philosophy, if I bring in enough wisdom, if I answer enough questions, then this person, yes, I can argue them into the gospel. But when we forget that it's actually being done by the power of God, a worst case scenario of what can happen, and it does happen, is false converts. You can talk someone into saying a prayer. But the problem is, is if they just say that prayer and they weren't actually under conviction of the Holy Spirit to repent of those sins— then you'll have someone who's made a profession of faith, and you see it all the time. I think it was a, yeah, look, I'm proud to be a Baptist. I love our heritage, but I, I think the stats for the Southern Baptist Convention, that people were rebaptized three or four times. Why? Why should that be happening? I think maybe if we are emphasizing more of the Holy Spirit's role in salvation, if we realize that it wasn't our wisdom to talk people in to getting saved so we can make sure, and granted, it's between them and God, but putting a heavy emphasis to make sure that the decisions are real. And I've seen that before too. I, look, I've been to the, the camp meetings and I've been to some of the services where someone is giving up and it might be a pastor and they're giving a, a very passionate story about some terrible event that happened and they'll talk about the flames, they'll get into hell. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being zealous, but then I've seen people come forward and they'll make emotional decisions. And yet you will not see them in church the following Sunday afterward. Their life was never changed. They didn't get saved because this was a work of man and not of the spirit. I've seen people who've, Pastors as well, too, and, and it's a shame they'll have the altar calls and they'll play the music for 15, 20 to 30 minutes and, and they'll play the, the, you know, the emotional music to try to course people to come forward. And they're talking like, you know, I need to have so many people at the altar to make a profession of faith. And then you will, you'll get some people to come forward, they'll make a profession of faith. And for some reason, they still get baptized. Not that they're truly resaved two or three times. There's something wrong there. There's something wrong there. If we realize that it's a work of God and it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction, it should change how we give the gospel. One, we should be a lot more prayed up. We should be walking in the Spirit, realizing that we are responsible for giving the message, but the power does not come from us. It should also give us a little bit more discernment, too. We shouldn't be so quick to rush someone into a decision because this decision needs to be one that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it needs to be a genuine one. It's not one that we can force on somebody. We have to realize that. Like, my children are getting older now, and I know they're starting to understand the gospel. I think of Adeline. You know, she can repeat to me, and she can tell me about, you know, she understands that Jesus died and that she rose again. But if I really press her and ask her about what it means to be a sinner, and does she need salvation, I know she doesn't get it yet. Could I talk her into saying a prayer? Yeah, but I'm not going to. I want to make sure that when it takes place, I pray to God it does take place, that is genuine. It's one where the Holy Spirit's convicting the heart and not just something that I'm forcing. And that's how we should be with everybody, realizing that it's a work of God. We're responsible for giving it out, but the power does not come from us. 
It should also help us, though, too, because sometimes we think, well, I'm inadequate for the task. Would God ever use me? Absolutely. God purposely chooses to use people, all of us, because we are inadequate. So we're thinking, hey, I can't give out the gospel because I don't think I have enough answers and I don't feel equipped. And I will say as pastors, we want you to be equipped to answer questions. But I also want you to realize, too, that a lot of times you'll see someone get saved. It's not going to be because you had some great debate or necessarily always some great conversation. It's going to be those times you're talking to them and you're fumbling over your speech and you feel like these people must think I'm a moron for the things I'm saying. I know this isn't coming out clearly and yet God works at the moment the person gets saved and their life changes and it has nothing to do with you. Why? Because God always gets all the glory. We trust him with the results. We're bold not because we're extra talented. We're bold not because we think we have the best arguments. We're bold because we realize that it's God. So don't be afraid to give out the gospel. And even when you are afraid, like the apostle Paul was, it's okay. Have the courage to go out and do it. And don't worry about how your performance is. Because God uses the weak things to confound the mighty. And we are all weak and we are all inadequate. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are equipped. We see that this is actually, though, a wisdom for the mature. Verse number six says, Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. The word mature here, there's a couple different thoughts behind it, but the one I personally believe that makes most sense in this context of this passage has the idea of being brought to completion. So it's talking about those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. So for those of us who are saved— while the world looks at the gospel message as something that is being foolish, we accept it for the treasure it really is. It's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. But I really like how this, how this finishes. It talks about the wisdom of this world or the princes of this world that come to naught. For all different time spans throughout the ages, there's been great thinkers there's been powerful leaders since the very beginning of time. And the philosophy and the belief systems from those time to times are constantly changing. And there's people who have great minds and have vastly higher IQ than probably any of us that are in here. And yet they were not able to find the truth of the gospel through that wisdom. And God says he's going to take what the world considers to be mighty. and He's going to bring it to nothing through what the world considers to be the foolishness of the gospel. I think that's really awesome that as Christians to realize we have the true wisdom, we have the true power. And it's a wisdom that's been prepared for us from eternity past. Verse number seven says, But we speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. This verse is packed with a lot of truth. It's, just, it's, it's a tiny verse, but there's so much truth in it. It says, which God, hath before, or which God hath ordained before the world unto our glory. There is several spots throughout the Bible where it talks about what God has accomplished, what God has purposed before the world even began. Before I want to get into it, just to tell you that if you're a believer, you have a lot going for you. If you're not a believer and you will trust Christ, you've got a lot going for you. So let me explain to you a little bit. It's called, some people talk, talk about it as being like the Trinitarian work of salvation. 
This idea of before time began, God knew that there would be a fall. He knew that there would be a sin. And let me clarify too. Some people think that, okay, God learned something from eternity past. And based on that, no, God exists outside of time. We learn things because we live in time as they happen. God doesn't learn. God just always knows. So God knew that there was going to be a fall. And he purposed, God the Father purposed that the Son would go. So God sends the Son. The Son purchases our salvation. And then the Holy Spirit is the one that is used to draw us to the Son. When you trust Christ as your Savior, at that point, you are sealed and you are being made into the image of the Son. So then you are kept by the Spirit and you are kept by the Son because the Son doesn't lose any. And then at the very end, which you can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, God then takes all, the, or Jesus takes all the things, the Son, that have been restored to him, and he gives them back to the Father. And so you see this 360 picture of redemption that takes place that God had always had in his mind. And that is really awesome. That from the beginning, God knew who you were. Some people think, well, would God ever save someone like me? knowing the things that I've done. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't learn anything about you. He knew what you would be, who you have been, and what you're going to be, because he just knows. He doesn't learn. He's outside of time. We'll go through some of these passages. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blame, or without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, with your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who, again, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And so this is that mystery that's being talked about that the world did not know, but this mystery that had already existed because God knew about it from before the foundation of the world. And so when you're thinking, does God love me? Does you know, does God really have a purpose for my life? Can I tell you, he knew you. He sent the Son for you. The Holy Spirit drew you. He convicted you. You came to the Son, and then the Holy Spirit sealed you. He is actively making you more into like Jesus Christ. The Son is keeping you, and then the Son is going to restore you to the Father at the end. So yes, does God have a purpose for you? Does he love you? He's always known you. He died for you. His work is still at work in you. And this is that great mystery that the world does not know. And if, I tell you right now, if you are not saved and the Holy Spirit of God is working on your heart, that means the Holy Spirit is drawing you. And if you will trust Christ, then you, you will be delivered to the Son. The Holy Spirit is going to seal you. All the sin that's still in your life, the Holy Spirit is going to begin to change you to be more like the Son. The Son is going to keep you. And then the Son is going to deliver you to the Father with a new glorified body. You've got a lot at work on your behalf. For those who believe the gospel— that is something incredible to think about. It's so big. It's the entire narrative of Scripture that we see from Genesis to Revelation. God's plan of redemption and how things have fallen and then bringing everything back to himself. This is that great mystery. This gives Romans 8.28 to 31 much more of a punch. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God 
to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. In this last verse, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? All of this, God knew about from eternity past and planned for you. So if God is for us, who can be against us? This world, this universe, God is being in control of, knew who you would be and made redemption possible. That is awesome. That is the mystery that we know, and yet the world, through their wisdom, doesn't understand, can't comprehend. In verse number eight, it says, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So through the foolishness of what is preached and the Spirit of God working in our hearts, we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. So what the world deemed to be foolish, we became Christians. And yet, what is it that the best of this world's minds have accomplished? Well, with worldly wisdom, they crucified the Lord of glory. Think about it. With all the scholars that existed back then, all the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the philosophers of the time, all the great minds that existed, and they missed everything that was taught in Scripture. They did not find Jesus through their own mind and through their own wisdom. In fact, the best of the wisdom that they have, they crucified the perfect, pure Son of God, showing how dark and depraved that they actually were. So I have to ask us Christians, why do we sometimes then try to dabble in with the world's philosophies? If that, if that, I mean, the pinnacle of the darkness of humanity and the sin that we could accomplish, this is what the world's wisdom brought about, then why, as Christians, do we try to pull from this pool of wisdom the best minds of the time, and this is the best that they could accomplish, was the darkest deed ever done in history. And it's interesting to me that God used their foolishness to bring about his purposes and they didn't even know it. That's crazy. And so while they didn't know it, then he goes on to, to quote Isaiah verse 64, verse 4. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. I, I want to read the entire passage in context, starting in Isaiah 64 and going through uh, verse 1. It says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, and when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the water to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down. The mountains flow down at thy presence, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him." So he's, he's using this as an illustration that from the beginning of the world, God has done some marvelous things, some wonderful things. And he did things that the people didn't even realize. He's planning things that people can't even comprehend. And he says that the gospel is one of these things. It hasn't entered into the ear, their ears, into their mind. It's something they haven't seen or they could really truly grasp what the gospel is. But then this next part says, 
we can understand these things. Starting verse number 10, it says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, or, yeah, for what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have not received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now, I feel bad because I know I've said this in the past, but this is probably one of the most butchered verses in the Bible as far as context. We preach it as, okay, this is something that we are one day going to receive. It's not. He's saying this is something we received already. What is it that we have received? It's that mystery that God knew about before the foundation of the world, the gospel, his plan of restoration, the, the whole counsel of God. He's like, the world, as much as they've searched for what they think is truth with their corrupt minds, has never been able to find it. In fact, they can't even comprehend it. But because of the Spirit, because of God's power, you have received it. You have comprehended these things. If you're a believer, there was a time in your life where you understood the gospel and put your faith in Jesus Christ, and it's because of the Spirit of God that was working in you. And he brings up the illustration as far as, um, you know, it's only a man's spirit that understands what's going on in his mind, essentially. Uh, it reminds me, ever since I was in probably elementary school up to my mid-20s, I used to daydream all the time, right? And so then people would talk to me, and they'd be like, so, uh, Larry, and then this is what I was hearing. Nothing. <laughs> and they said, yeah, so what do you think about that? I, oh, what? Were you, <laughs> I'm sorry, were you talking to me? And they're like, were you just droning? No, there was a lot of stuff going on in my mind, believe it or not. None of it was based in reality, but there was stuff going on up there. And from the outside, they had no idea what was going on. But because I'm me and the spirit within me, I comprehend what's going on within my mind, saying the same thing for God. We can't comprehend God's thoughts on our own, but the Holy Spirit of God kind of acts as a bridge between us and God and gives us an idea and understanding of what's going on in the mind of Christ. It's called illumination. And it was through this, through the preaching of God's Word, primarily through God's Word, and sometimes the Spirit of God just kind of prompting you and giving you decisions— that God speaks to us, that we have kind of an understanding of what's actually going on in his mind. Verse number uh, 13 says, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Makes me think of what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of thy law. In context, this is primarily talking about the gospel that people didn't comprehend it, that they couldn't perceive it without the assistance of the Holy Spirit opening their mind. But it does have a lot of application for us continually as Christians as we read through the Word of God. If you find there's times in your life where you get in a rut, where you're reading the Bible, and you don't seem to get anything out of it, perhaps you're sitting and you're listening to a message being preached, and if it's today, it's probably my fault, not yours. But sometimes it has to do with the fact that we're not really in tune with the Spirit. We're not really walking in the Spirit. So you can go into Scripture, and you can read it, and you not necessarily pull anything out of it for weeks on end, because it is primarily, it's a spiritual book. And yet there are those same times where if you You've been saved for any amount of period of time, and you've read through your Bible a few times, or at least a portion of Scripture several times. 
You will also have to acknowledge, too, that you can read the same chapter over and over again throughout your life. And how many times that same chapter that says the same thing speaks to us in so many different ways. That is the Spirit of God working in our life. That is what illumination is. It's the application of it when we're reading it. And it's so important that we are prayed up and that we are spending time in the Word of God and we are listening to good voices, but also being mindful that we understand that it is a spiritual work. We see that the natural man, though, does not understand. It says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That neither can he know them is literally udunatai, in the Greek, it literally states, is not able. The natural man is not able to understand the things of God. And the idea of discern, it can mean judgment or praise. So this is where things get kind of like weird, like when people try to explain this passage. And sometimes it's a, it's a little bit funny the way it, it gets presented, but some people then think, okay, that means they, a person, a human being, can't have any idea or understanding of what the Bible is actually teaching. That's not saved. That's not entirely true. There's atheists out there that can actually quote to you truths from Scripture. But there's a difference between understanding the truth and understanding the application and the value of it. Let me give you a good example. Like, I'm from Iowa. I'm not ashamed of that, mostly. I'm not exactly cultured in the arts, okay? My sister, Beth— is a brilliant artist. She can draw. She's spent a lot of time into it. So here's the thing. We could both be looking at a, uh, looking at a painting, right? And she could see the colors and explain to me the expression of what the artist was intending and how all this goes together. But if she's not there, I will look at this painting and be like, this is stupid. Why do I care? So there's someone with the mind who sees the value of something, and there's someone like me who acknowledges there might be value to it, but I don't understand it. I don't get it. To me, it's really worthless. So I've heard this passage taught too. Well, without the Spirit of God, the person has absolutely no understanding of what's being taught. It's almost like, okay, with that view of mind, it's whenever you're presenting the gospel, it's like the person becomes brain dead. Like, there's like, oh, what? That's not what's happening. Just like when I'm looking at a painting, I'm not like, oh, what are colors? That's, that's not what happens. But there is a value. There is an appraisal that's taking place. Someone looks at the gospel. They see it. They might even be able to repeat the words back to you. But in their minds, there's no value. The application for them really, in their minds, isn't important. We see that in Scripture in verses, Romans 3.11 says that there is none that understand, that there is none that seeketh after God. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 says, But the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. And again, another very emphatic portion of scripture, neither indeed can be. So then they that are of the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we ha all had our conversation in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the, uh, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. What does this not mean, though? I'm not stating that we lose free will and that we don't have choice. What does this mean, though? Well, according to our nature, we're always going to choose based on our nature. We're always going, we're always going to choose what we love. Let me give you a, a hopefully better understanding of this. 
we would all acknowledge that before you trusted Christ as your Savior, lost people tend to love their sins, don't they? This is what you worship. This is what you serve. That's what the Bible clearly teaches as well, too. And so you can present the gospel to somebody, and this gospel demands a change of mind. It demands repentance. So you're going to be asking someone who loves their sin and has no real desire for the Savior then to turn from what they love and to turn to what the Bible says they naturally hate. Would this be possibly accomplished in the flesh? No. Did you lose choice? No. What did you choose? You chose what you wanted to. You chose to love your sin. You chose to live in rebellion against God because that was your nature. But this is where things get cool. Someone like you goes out and you start giving someone the gospel, right? And the Holy Spirit of God starts to work through you. And then that conviction begins to take place. So now the person who, who loved their sin, the light of the gospel and the truth of God's word, that's why Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You start to see your sin for what it really is the first time in your life. And it's at that moment, the spirit of God enables you to trust Christ. You would have never have done it while you were in love with your sin. But that time where the Spirit of God is working on your heart and you can see sin for what it is. You can see the love of God for what it is. And then it's, the sin is not so desirable. And so there, a change of mind begins to take place. Then you can repent of that sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then you have that new heart. You have that new mind. It's not that you don't have a choice before you were saved. It's just that before you were saved, you would always choose what you wanted to, which was always against the nature of God and to love your sin. But because of the grace of God in our lives, when the gospel was preached to us, that illumination took place for the first time. We were able to turn from our sin because we saw what it was for the first time in clarity. And we could turn towards Jesus Christ. And that begins a life of repentance. And this process will begin from the point of salvation for the rest of our lives. When we, get start, we start to read the scripture, we start to hear preaching, we start to listening to, like, to good, sound, biblical teaching, more illumination takes place. He exposes more sin in our life. We see it for what it truly is. And then we continually repent. And then we continue to be made more and more into the image of Christ, which is why I'm very careful with the words I used when presenting the gospel. Some people say to be saved, that means you make Jesus Christ Lord of all of your life. That is not true. The entire process of being saved is, Lord, is Jesus becoming Lord more and more of our life as we become more like Jesus Christ. So we have that initial surrender where God illumines some of the sin that we can see. And so, yes, we do turn. We do become followers of Christ. But following means walking and making progress. And that illumination is still working in your life. As you come into Scripture, He shows you more. You see sin more clearly. Which is why when you talk to people who are actually faithful, mature Christians, when you ask them about their life and how they view themselves, they will not think, oh yeah, I'm such a great person. Because the closer we become to Christ, the more we realize how absolutely, desperately we need Christ. That should keep us humble. Spiritual maturity and becoming more like Christ, it also doesn't mean that we walk around condemning ourselves, but we realize the more you get closer to Christ, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Our sin becomes so much more apparent the closer we get to him. And illumination really helps and is really necessary for that process. That should also affect how we give the gospel too. 
understanding that sometimes you're talking to someone it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere spirit of god may or may not be working at that time but it should also give us great hope though too because sometimes you'll see people like the apostle paul himself someone who was really just bent on destroying christianity and yet we see christ telling him it was hard for you to kick against the pricks there was conviction going there we couldn't even see be faithful to give the gospel out to everyone, and even though it seems like they're rejecting it, understand the Spirit of God can be working in ways you can't even see, that you don't even notice. But also realize that you are responsible for giving the gospel, but you're not responsible for the outcome of the gospel. Some people take that on themselves, and they become so deeply burdened by it, and they think that, okay, this is performance-driven. And I've seen it, unfortunately, within Christianity. This is how many people I saw saved, you know, this year. And because the way they do it, and it's more of a man-centered approach. Yeah, I've seen 50 people saved and one person baptized. Okay, so maybe one person actually got saved, and the others are really up in the air. Not that baptism saves, but if you get someone who makes a profession of faith and they don't become followers of Christ, no evident signs of repentance, there's something— that should really be looked at there. It is the work of the Spirit of God. Don't take that burden upon yourself to think that you're the one that changes hearts. God will do that. He uses us as his means so he can get the glory. So when a piece of dirt shines the light of the gospel through the fumbleness, through us fumbling and our words not being clear and us thinking that we're absolutely inefficient, and, and we're not, we're not, God will get all the glory because it'll be the Spirit of God working through us, working in the hearts of other people. But he also talks about understanding and confusion, and I want to talk about the right and wrong kind of weird. You'll understand where I'm getting with this. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. So we already established that when the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in your life, you have understanding you didn't before. You have the capacity to understand the things that you didn't before. And due to illumination— we begin a life of repentance, and we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Well, if the natural man can't understand the Scripture that's changing our lives, our lives that have been changed by Scripture are also going to be foreign to those who are seeing our lives. But that gets into the right and wrong kind of weird, because I've heard a couple different things, and it also causes confusion to the world, but not the confusion it should. I've heard some people who are more part of like a hyper-grace church movement where repentance isn't necessary, there's real no dedication needed for Jesus Christ in your life, live however you want to, come to our church, be entertained, but don't grow as long as you keep on coming. And those people will come—I've worked with some of them—they'll come to work, and you can see there's real no dedication. It's very apparent that the kingdom of God is not on their mind, it is of no concern to them at all. And then they'll talk about, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, you should come to our church. But then the way they live, the ethic they have at work, and how they— uh, Basically, the integrity that they don't have and all these signs like, hey, you claim to be a Christian, but this doesn't seem to match your message. That's the wrong kind of weird. But then we have other people who are on the other side of it to the extreme where it's more of a legalistic movement where you've got people who are saying you need to take a set of man-made rules upon your life and they'll put heavy emphasis that if you do these things people will notice you're Christians because you're different and they'll say you need to do all these things but they don't even have a thimble amount of Bible in context to back up anything that they have to say. You need to embrace this on your life. You embrace it wholeheartedly and people see you and they're like, yeah, you're kind of weird. And you're like, oh, good. People know I'm a Christian. No, you're just weird. That's not it either. What do we want? We want people 
who were dedicated followers of Jesus Christ, who understood the cost of discipleship meant that following Christ means dying to our desires and having a zeal for him and for his kingdom. Authenticity, not taking on man-made rules, but also not neglecting the rules that we find in God's word. Following Christ wholeheartedly, taking his yoke upon us, where it becomes evident that he truly is Lord of our life. When people see us, they'll say that they did like an ax. They'll take notice that you've been with Jesus. Your words will change. Your motivations will change. Your attitude will change. What you live for will absolutely change. That is the right kind of weird. I want people, if they're going to think I'm strange and unusual because I'm more like Jesus Christ, not because I became victim of man-made systems. That is what we want in our life. And that is what God uses sometimes as a means of grace to get the gospel out. Because they see that there is someone who has been with Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God begins to work. They see the authenticity of Jesus Christ in your life. You give that gospel and with the power of the Holy Spirit that your life that God will use as a testimony to them to open their minds, to shine the light. They'll see the sin for what it is and turn to Christ. All because of the grace of God. That's awesome. That's what we should strive for. That's what it's uh, discussing that we can judge all things in the sense spiritual things. We have that capacity, but the world will not judge us accurately. Verse 16, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And it's again, it's simply stating that those who don't know Christ don't have his mind. Those who do, do. We have access to it. So I need to go back again, or as I said last week, I need to circle back to chapter number one so we understand why Paul is saying all this. Because remember, chapter one, two, three, and four are all about really disunity within the church. And so he tells them that you weren't saved by the wisdom of men. And then chapter number two, he's basically stating you weren't saved by your own efforts. The difference between you and someone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior is the grace of God. So what's the point of disunity? Why, why are we bringing up worldly philosophies into our church and then arguing over them, is what he's getting at. He's like, the true wisdom of God is deemed as foolishness by the world. You weren't saved by the wisdom of this world. In fact, you weren't even saved by your own doing. He says, be humble. And that, you'll see this theme continue on through verses, or chapter verses, or chapter and all, through all the verses of three and four. These strong arguments, where it almost seems like he's rabbit trailing, but he's not. We see that there's a centrality, that there should be unity at the cross and through the grace of Christ.